I get feedback that my podcast and the way I'm looking at the broader world paints a very negative picture of the world. All I'm trying to do is get people to understand the world we live in is not going to get easier for the average person. Times have changed and if you want to kind of not pay attention to that, then that's fine. Stick your head in the sand. Um, You'll be in a compromised position. Um, Good luck to you. It's not that I'm trying to be negative. It's just that I'm trying to be real. There will be good times to come out of this, but not just yet. And for you to prosper in the good times, you need to get through the bad times. Bad times include things like recessions, which I think is just around the corner. I was going to make this topic for this episode for recessions. However, planning out this episode, I went too much into the current state of place. So I'll just make the next one fully about recession. If you can't understand recessions, you lose out on access to the best opportunities. I believe that due to the way money is being managed on a global scale, the economy is a lot more volatile which you can take the good and the bad side of. Today, I'm going to look at a few ways which things will change in the future to allow the future to be brighter. Cue the intro. Welcome to the My Personal Economy Podcast, the place where we get you up to speed with what's going on so you can make sound decisions when it comes to your financial life. Now, let's get started on today's topic. Here's a few things that will come once we get through whatever phase of history you call this. Number one, how we do money will change. Two, governance will take on blockchain, voting, federal, state and local levels. It will make life a lot easier. Privacy, scamming ID, um, we won't be posting, you know, or sending, I should say, our ID everywhere across the internet, which is what we've been doing. Before we transition to the good times, we will continue to slide into whatever is coming in the near future. There's a great book which is written in 1997 called The Fourth Turning, which predicted the GFC and the broad situation we're in today. The book discusses a long cycle which lasts 80 to 100 years. The cycle is based on generations. This saying, which you may or may not have heard, epitomizes the book. And that is, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. This is one of the truest quotes I've ever heard. I love to take these complicated things and dumb it down And at the moment, we have hard times, but we still don't have strong men or women yet. So that tells me a lot. It's easy to see how things are not going to get worse because our current leaders aren't going to change anything. You can't tell me that Albo is going to come in and change the world for everyone. I'm sorry, not going to happen. And it's just going to leave you disappointed. I want to go off on a little tangent, actually, and that is... um, People on the left that um, work in government money jobs are going to get hit the worst, along with people on the bottom, of course, because they don't understand that the environment we're in has created good times for them. As much as they say, oh, look at us, we need more money, we need more money, they have been getting more money. 
the truth is that in the future, this fake money world we're living in is gonna is gonna end up in a point where the chickens are counted, and at the end of the day, money will become scarce again. And what I'm saying is, people won't tolerate this bullshit of oh, let's print another twenty percent of the money supply because that's going to fix everything. We are going to see this replay out. I think at least another t- two times before all the chips fall over. But anyway, where was I? Weak men create hard times. Okay, so we're in hard times and the hard times create strong men or women. None of these leaders are strong men or women. Actually, we're in a very part, a dangerous part of the world right now where the definition of strong needs to be um, needs to be carefully considered because Hitler was a strong man. You know, if you ever want to figure out how Hitler condo all of a, a whole nation into the atrocities they committed um he was a strong man right obviously we don't want those sorts of strong men it's not easy to see that things are going to get any easier so let's just go back and focus on the th- positive things that are going to change once things all fall over and everything falls apart and all the politicians get on the same page and decide to um adopt all this new way of doing things so let's go into uh, what was number one how will money change so i've kind of discussed that a little bit but i'm just going to try and boil it down into the important things the way we do money specifically means to how we transfer value it's clearly broken now the system you know if you look at who's holding all of the money it's the wealthy few percent and um all of the value is getting created by arguably the the bottom of the pile because they're the ones that are working harder at this point in time more and more people are coming around to understand the fact that how we do money has been manipulated by the people with the most wealth and power in this point in time what i'm seeing is something that is going to basically end uh, and i think by my best guesstimates, um, the end of this decade, and that is a currency war. So what do I mean by that? Well, you kind of need to have to understand the US dollar, which is the global currency. It, it does, I don't know, 70, 75% of the world's trade. And what happened after World War II was they had Bretton Woods, which was basically a conference to kind of sort the world out after the wars after World War Two, and um, basically how how the world currency worked was the US dollar was linked to gold. So um, you could get some US dollars and you could take it to the bank and they would have to give you an equivalent amount of gold based on how much dollars you had. And all of the world currencies were linked to the US dollar. What's happened since then is a couple of major things. So that was 1943, I think. And then basically what happened was America created more money than what they actually had gold in, in their, in their vaults in Fort Knox. So 1960s come around, America have to fund a war. They are taking gold from the rest of the world because America is the most secure place and the rest of the world gets US dollars to, to spend um, so they can trade globally fast and easy because gold is, is hard to transfer from country to country. But basically what happens is 
the world figures out that America's printed more notes, more US dollars, than what they actually do have the equivalent for gold in the system. So basically they screwed everyone. You know, the ultimate distrustful action, I guess you could say. After that, Nixon um, famously delinked the value of the dollar from gold. So you could net now no longer trade money in directly for gold. So basically, a lot of people tell you the US dollar became worthless in 1971. The problem with not having the world currency linked to actually anything is that it basically means they can create more pieces of paper, more money. Um, now it's done digitally with the press of the button, but they can create more money, which has an inflationary effect on the way we do things. So to boil it down, it bastardizes the transfer of value between people because you don't know the value of the money you hold. And if you want to see a more extreme version of this, think about living in somewhere like Venezuela or um, Argentina's done it a fair bit. Turkey's going through it at the moment. Um, plenty of countries, plenty of countries in Africa that have gone through this. And basically what happens is they have to print so much money to basically trade with the world because as they start printing more to cover their debts, right, but they, they, don't, they don't go and earn more money. They take the easy way out and print more money. But as they print more money, the world understands they're printing more money, so it becomes less valuable, um, which means they then have to print more to pay their debts that are in foreign currency. And that's what you get. Um, that's how you get a hyperinflation. So for 50 years, we've come to this point where everyone's getting on the same page and they're like, all right, America have screwed us. Um, which is actually a scary thought when you when you think, well, China's the next biggest in the world um, and America's just ruining their power, but that's a topic for another day. Anyway, I probably just spent five minutes getting to the point that I actually want to make. And the point is, is that there's going to be a currency war or a competition for what gets the world currencies. I want to touch on that because this is important for you to understand and this is why I'm a big believer of not putting all your eggs in the one basket. And this should be where I do my not financial advice disclaimer. So count that as it. Let, let's, let's go through a few of the currencies. So there's, there's gold. People want, want to go back to gold. That's cool. Um, no one actually knows where the gold is. No countries have actually been audited for gold. Not any of the big ones anyway. Neither China or America have actually been audited for gold. So no one knows how much they hold. There's Bitcoin. The reason Bitcoin's gone from zero to whatever it is now, 30,000 US, is purely that factor. One of the major reasons Bitcoin came to life in 2009 was the bastardization that happened in the GFC with all of the, um, with all of the banking scandal. Um, you've got stable coins, um, stable crypto coins, which we've seen. There's a number of different ones. Lately, we've seen Luna, which totally collapsed. Um, so that experiment failed. You've got stable coins in terms of let's create a basket of all the world currencies and then create a coin out of that. So um, basically what that protects you from is large fluctuations in any one currency, which means therefore it's easier for the smaller countries in the world not to get screwed when they're borrowing in 
say US dollars, for example, they can borrow in the stable currency and its value is going to be relatively stable over time. Interestingly enough, in 1943, um, Keynes, which is the, the economist um, for the West, that was his suggestion was to make a coin, was to make a stable coin called Bancor, but things didn't go down that way. Basically, America saved the world's ass and they got what they wanted, which is the reserve currency. So you've got gold, you've got Bitcoin, you've got stable coin, stable crypto, you've got a stable coin as in terms of um, actual currencies that exist now. You've got central bank digital currencies, which is another fancy thing that countries are bringing out now. Um, China's at the forefront of that. And that's going to challenge the existing way we do things now in a big way. I won't go into it too much, but basically if you've got a digital currency and I've got a wallet, which is in my phone, a digital wallet, kind of just like your online banking app, then the question is, why do we actually need banks? Because at the end of the day, if the central bank gets involved with kind of digital currencies, it kind of eliminates the middleman. So you could say we need banks for lending. So the question is with central bank digital currencies is that if I've got a wallet with the central bank, why do I need all these middle banks like Westpac and all of that? Ultimately, this is an experiment. And I think, I actually think that there's a lot of countries and maybe Australia are in there that are gonna try central bank digital currencies. Why? Because it allows them more control. Basically, if they've got a wallet, if you've got a wallet, they can track every transaction you make. So it allows them when they create stimulus, which is when they just create money out of thin air, it allows them to basically pick winners and losers in the economy. Let's say if the world's going through a food shortage, for example, they can decide to, um, they can basically figure out anyone who that's in the agricultural industry and they can do things like just put money in their wallets and say, hey guys, you've got 30 days or whatever to use this money we've put in your wallet. If it's not used, we'll just take it back. They're going to think of these smart ways to try and stimulate the economy up front. The reason why I think that these central bank digital currencies will fail is ultimately because they're controlled by a system that has people wanting to create more money and not specifically wanting to create more money. It's creating more money without having created enough value in return for that money. So anyway, this whole currency war is one of the things that is central to um, what is going to play out and what is going to get resolved, I believe, over the next 10 to 20 years. That's probably my forte where I work, understanding that and I'm kind of struggling actually with kind of communicating to you what you need to know because it is such a nuanced topic and for the average person out there, you're living in a paradigm. So it's very hard to, it's very hard to um, help try and get someone to think outside of that paradigm. Um, and I guess this is what I was saying before kind of near the top was that the people that are trapped in this paradigm and can only think in this paradigm are going to get a rude awakening when this paradigm bursts. And mark my words, it's going to burst. It might not happen this decade, which is what I think. It might take 20 or 30 years, but eventually it's going to burst. And 
people are going to be exposed and I see it financially and people are going to realize how poor they actually are, I think, in the coming decade. Let's move on to the second thing because I don't want to spend all day um, talking about this stuff. The second thing is that how we do governance is going to change. And when I say how we do it, I mean how we do it in terms of the globe. Um, Obviously, some countries are going to take this on and other countries are not going to take it on. But by and large, it's going to even everything out. The first point I want to make about that is if a country adopts blockchain, they make it very hard for elections to be rigged, number one. The very worst kind of, you know, out of humanities that the dictators do is they rig elections to keep themselves in. At least with the blockchain, it's it's immutable if you use it right, which means that person's vote counts. It can't be bastardized. They can't. Um, they can't track them down and go, oh, we're going to kill you if you vote for the people we don't like because the blockchain will allow it to be done in a way where people can't be identified based on who they've voted for. In a more, let's go to a more local example and say, I used the one of the gay marriage one, which was a bit of a fuck around. It, it went through it and it, I don't know how much it costs, 80 million or something like that out of the public purse, which is our money. Can you imagine if they just had, and th- th- this is what I always say, I say, well, you can program it, right? If, if people are voting from their phones, an app from their phone, and you could make it so that you could have a rule. So, for example, if 65% of the people vote, of the adult, of the voting population, vote on their phones, and we get 65%, for example, yes, then that's enough for us to make a mandate to bring this law in. If we had something like that, you would cut the amount of public servants, the amount of lawyers we use massively because you're getting the feedback directly from the source. It's very hard to bastardize that information. Don't get me wrong, media and politics parties will still try and play those games, but the data will be more clearer for all to see because right now what's getting played is a game where people just trust one side or another. My opinion is you shouldn't trust any of those sites because they're all full of shit and they've all been bastardized. A blockchain voting system would, with transparency for the public, would allow us to see what the public wants. So if I'm sitting there going, well, I don't want gay gay marriage to be a thing, but 65% of the people have voted for it. So I believe in you know democracy more than what I believe in gay marriage. If, if the majority of the people want that to happen then that can happen. But now that doesn't actually happen. People get told false facts and what is it? Miss, you know, fake news and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, the clarity of what people want and what the politicians are saying what they want is going to cut out all this shit. And actually what it will do is cut out a lot of the politics. So it it will allow government to understand the priorities of the people, both as an aggregate, aggregate and down to a local level as well i think the major benefit from the from the little person is that um, we're going to have a world where people think that their vote actually counts meaning there won't be as many dicks drawn on um, ballot papers as what there was before one of the worst things i've noticed in the world is when you put people or a group of people in a position where they feel like they aren't listened to that is not a good thing that's why i'm That's why I think people should be able to say what they want, even if it's hateful and hurtful, 
because if you just cut them off, it it doesn't mean they've changed their thoughts or opinions if you've censored them. It just means they just go to some dark place of the internet and they find other people that have been pushed out. Now, the problem here is that, you know, you might just have someone that, you know, is a kid that's a bit ignorant, for example, a little bit ignorant, but then you push them out onto the fringes and then they meet up with, you know, someone that's pure evil and that pure evil person changes them to think purely evil things, whereas before those people were just thinking ignorant things. Kind of forget where I was going there. Oh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was sitting there going, it would make, I was thinking it would make the people feel that what they think and what they value is actually listened to by government and then by government using these sorts of technology. They would base their actions and their mandates would be based on that, which means the results of their actions would benefit the people. So you get a positive feedback loop in that way. The book, The Fourth Turning, goes on about old power structures disappearing and new infrastructure um, will come in to suit the needs of the people or the old infrastructures get rebuilt to suit the needs of the people. What you need to understand here and why that's true is that power structures don't like change. Change means there's a risk that the power, that those power structures or the, people, the operators within those structures could lose their power. This means that as times change, the needs of the people change, but these power structures don't change because they want to hold on to power, but they lose their ability to function for the people in the time because the needs of the people have changed. Instead, what happens they, is they only function for a minority, which is the rich people that control them. I'm just going to go through a few examples of this. Political parties like Labour and Liberal, like, come on, like, if you're still picking a side now, you need to actually think about the topics um, involved and think about the ability for for your party to, to deliver that because it's a lie. You know, back in the day, Labour and Liberal, yeah, they stood for something. But this is what I'm saying. Times have changed. Central banks is a great example. They're meant to be at the lender of last resort to rescue banks from failure. Now they're coming in wanting just to do banking with, with central bank digital currencies. Unfortunately, what it means when they come in and they rescue banks from failure is they go, oh, that's our job, that's our job. But what happened, what's been happening more and more as time goes by is as soon as there's a little bit of weakness, what they deserve is weakness in the economy, they come in and they provide help to the economy. Unfortunately, what that means is it keeps the inefficient players in the economy alive, which it feels like it's anti-Darwinism, right? The weakest in the herd will naturally get hunted down by the lions and that makes the herd stronger. But what central banking is doing is keeping all the weakest alive, which is actually slowing down the herd which means it's feeding time for the lions. And that's what it's going to turn into. This is why this is why people think, oh, I'm very negative. It's like, well, that's going to happen before the good times come. Another example is um, these power structures is the IMF, which was set up to help poor countries get out of the third world, basically. Recently, El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as a currency and the IMF basically got all shitty about it and said they wouldn't support them. Forgive me for me being skeptical about these power structures 
But the IMF has had 80 years. And what have they done for the El Salvadorian people or for any poor country in the world? The answer is fuck all. Like, they're still poor. Most of them don't have a bank accounts or schools. So you can't tell me these structures are effective at all because that's bullshit. No one's going to swallow that. Power companies is another massive thing. I go on about this all the time. If you've got solar, you know about it. They're taking our excess power, six cents per kilowatt, off the roof. That's what we're getting paid. And they're selling it back to us for 32 cents. Why? So what? So to keep these coal companies alive that are apparently that apparently we hate because they're polluting the world. It's bullshit. It's all it's all politics. It's all lies. And they're all just greasing each other's hands. So this is what I mean by these power structures. Um, they come they become corrupted and they only work for the people who have power in it, which are the, basically the wealthy people. So. I guess the point I'm trying to say, I'm trying to highlight is that all of these infrastructures are old and they don't um, serve or service the people anymore and they'll eventually fall over and they will be built, rebuilt to suit modern times. The third point is identification. So let me explain this in terms of the internet because... Before then, we didn't really have the problem that we have today with um, identity, identity theft, all of that sort of stuff. Added to that, you, you can put together the billions and billions of dollars worth of scamming that goes on every year. Uh, it's a massive problem. And obviously, it's very, um, it's very profitable for those that want to do those things. Let me just explain. So Web2 bought all these fancy things in. So instant video, social media, mobile internet on our phones. And that was all great, but we didn't actually pay for it. We, how we paid, like we didn't pay for it with money. We paid for it with our privacy. What happens is they mine our data. So the scary thing here is that AI is getting it to a point where the singularity is coming, which basically means it can learn on its own. Um, and the concern is that we've basically got all of the data, all of our knowledge out there in the internet about us, and we don't have any control over what happens to it. So basically, people can, can manipulate that. On top of this, we actually share our copies of our ID all over the internet, which exposes us to massive risk. That happens in my business every day. People people have to share their ID because you need to you need to show your ID to get access to a number number of things. Um, that exposes us to, to this big risk because um, people are trying to hack us online with our ID. People can go and take credit cards, they can take loans, they can do all sorts of stuff. What's going to happen is that Web3 will be built where we're not required to share so much of our personal information online. We will be able to verify that we are who we are over a blockchain and it will just be okay to do it. The technology will just work. It's kind of like using internet banking now. Whereas if you told someone about internet banking in 1995, for example, they would have been like, oh no, that's crazy talk. So just take my word for it. Blockchain is going to allow us to identify ourselves very easily um, over the internet. This is going to do a lot of stuff. So obviously it's going to um, prevent the scammers from scamming people billions and billions of dollars all over the world. 
it's going to mean the big companies don't get hacked. And this is one of those things that gets ignored, but you look at the biggest companies, MasterCard, Visa, big banks all over the world, they've all been hacked. You know, mass data has been stolen. We like to conveniently not look at that. The other way this can move, of course, is that you get China where um, you've got your social credit scoring where they can find you anywhere in China where they've got CCTV, which is a lot of places. They can find you on social recognition. They can find you with the facial recognition. They understand where you hang out, who you're hanging out with, and that is formed as a part of your credit score. So right now in China, I don't know if you're aware, but your social credit score can mean that you are barred from getting on the train. You know, basically that they'll, they'll confine you in one part of a city and if there's no jobs there, too bad. So that's the other way the internet can turn. People say I'm negative. I'm not that negative. I don't think things are going to happen that way. I think the good part is going to come and once it comes through, um, our technology um, will be able to prosper. The people will be able to prosper from the values that these technologies bring. Right now, we're just getting crushed by the rich. At the moment, the history is yet to be written on all of this. Um, but as I said, I'm an optimist. We're going to have to experience some bad shit before we get there, though. I will touch on one other thing. And the answer to the question out of all of this is, how do you protect yourself? Um, how do you navigate these difficult times? I put this podcast in place, which is called My Personal Economy, so that at the end of the day, you can be the master of your own destiny. I try to paint a picture of the times as how I see it. What you do, however, is your responsibility. I'll give you the easiest answer, but I know 95% of people won't do it because it's just too easy. How do I know this? Because I've been telling people this for at least four or five years, and it's the main pillar behind whatever successes I've made in my personal finance. That is, spend 20 minutes a day reading about personal finance, investing, or the economy, or retirement planning, or whatever it is that's going to get you, um, that's going to help your personal finances. Do not wimp out and watch social media videos because you just can't soak in all of that information, and a lot of that information is going to lead you down the wrong paths anyway. Social media has too much telling you what to do, which isn't actually learning. Added to this, some of the things you need to learn are just paradigm shifts. I can tell you that money is just made out of thin air. And for example, every time you get a home loan, 95% of that money is coming out of thin air. And you could believe me, you could believe all of this of what I've just told you the last 20, 30 minutes. But to actually learn it and understand it will take time and dedication. Once you get a firm enough understanding of how things work, then you can start making decisions about how to live your life and how to prepare for the future. You have to put in the work and that's 20 minutes a day. You can start off at five minutes a day if you can't handle the 20. Just go to Amazon and look at the topics that interest you, whether it's property investing or getting debt free or your superannuation or your crypto or whatever. The best books are going to be there and you can see their ratings. So obviously you can just buy the best rated books and go from there. My best advice is to have a coffee every morning or a tea or whatever and open up that book and it will become a habit. That's my advice. Very easy. Read for 20 minutes a day. 
Um, that's it for me. Um, hope you liked it. Sorry this one was a bit scratchy and put together, but really the, the issues that I've covered have been massive ones, which probably could be one-hour episodes on all of those three, three things or, you know, the, the money part is basically infinity because it's crazy out there at the moment. But anyway, that's it. That's all I wanted to get through. Next time is recession talk, um, which I've been talking about for a while, but I've noticed on um, in the media lately, um, I see recession popping up and oh, there's no, there's no talk of inflation. So it's coming. I can feel it. Um, I feel like America already in recession. They've had one quarter of GDP, which was... Um, the first quarter and no one's talking about the fact that things are actually looking worse and all you really need is two quarters of negative GDP and you're in a recession so um, no one's talking about it but it's coming Um, I'll get to that next cheers Thanks for listening to the My Personal Economy Podcast. I hope you've got some nuggets of wisdom you can use from today's episode. My goal with this podcast is to help people understand their finance a little bit better. So if you have any questions I can address, please get in contact. You can find me by searching Will Bell Mortgage Broker on Google or Facebook. Thanks for stopping by.